we don't have the same resourcing model and structures in our smaller geos that we have in our bigger geos as we are scaling. So we also take a geographic lens to how do we think about LTV to CAC and how do we optimize that? In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ben Murray, and I'd like to welcome Rachda Sundar of HubSpot. Great to have you here. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. So excited to be on this podcast with you today and explore a bunch of different topics on finance. Yeah, thanks for being here. So before we dive into Talk Shop, tell us a little bit about your background and your role at HubSpot. So I have had a career in finance that spans over 15 years now. So I've spent a lot of time in finance. I spent my first 13 years at Microsoft doing various different roles. I started off as a marketing controller. So a lot of like OPEX and controllership and got into advertising controllership during a time where things were moving from print to digital advertising and search advertising. Had a really good time working with different agencies on the controllership function. After three years there, I moved to a small team that actually started to think about Office 365 and cloud transformation for Microsoft as we were making the shift from on-premise to cloud. It was a team, it was a small cross-functional team from across the company, and we were thinking through everything from systems and tools to processes to how do you measure a business, a subscription business that's very different from the traditional business Microsoft had? What are the KPIs? How do you think about offerings and pricing? How do you talk to partners and bring them along the journey in this transformation? So had an incredible ride just thinking through different business models and how you drive a business model transformation for a company like Microsoft. After spending two and a half years there, I was asked to help build and lead the Azure team as Microsoft was getting started in the Azure business. We were seven years behind from AWS as we started the business and started to scale. And there was a lot we needed to think through starting from a new business model, which is a consumption business model. Again, like data, system, tools, rhythms, compensation, offerings, and I started with a team of two and spent five and a half years there building a team to about a team of 30, 35 people, helping scale the business from, at that time, less than a billion dollars in Azure revenue to the cloud revenue that Microsoft is at today. And really helping, the biggest learning there is how do you build a team from scratch while scaling a business like Azure for Microsoft. So I had an incredible time there for five and a half years, partnered with engineering and marketing primarily. And I wanted to get the experience of partnering with sales. 
So I moved to Microsoft US Finance, leading their FP&A team there, partnering with the sales leader that was leading Microsoft US, which is 50% of Microsoft's business. It was a really interesting time there because this was right before pre-COVID. And this was really the time where we had start to think about how do we adjust our strategies to go to market in a world of COVID where different industries were building, behaving differently. And we had to resource to go to market slightly differently than we had in the past. So spent two and a half years there and then moved to HubSpot. Here I lead the FP&A team for HubSpot. And the reason I made the move was I had spent time in different pipes like OPEX and engineering finance and sales finance and marketing finance at Microsoft. Now I wanted the breadth of understanding how finance can really be the bridge between all different functions and be a strategic partner for a scaling company like HubSpot, where we're at a $1.5 billion of revenue. So I lead all of FP&A team comprising of corporate FP&A, our sales finance team, our commissions team, marketing finance, customer success, as well as our product and strategic finance teams. Appreciate that background. So yeah, Microsoft, huge company now going to HubSpot, still like a nice size company in itself, but a big transition there. And maybe we'll get to that later. Any surprises moving from a Microsoft to a HubSpot? Uh, but yeah, it was kind of the controllership background, FP&A, kind of silos, but now HubSpot, where really a global view of the business, which is a nice segue into talking shop here to just tell us about the departments that report to you now, we got a little taste of it there, but just curious departments that roll up to you, team sizes, and then I think stage of business, we know about yeah, 1.5 yep. billion in revenue. So tell us a little bit about the department structure within your org. Yeah, definitely. And the department structure I have within our org very much follows the structure of the company as you think about FP&A and finance, right? Because we are the strategic business partners that are helping drive a lot of decision making within the company. So I have my corporate FPNA. So that basically corporate FPNA, you think about them, they are the business partners to the CFO. Kate Buker, who's my boss. So helping through earnings, managing the PL, really running all of our processes, planning, forecasting. So they are very much focused on how do we build the right tool set to set the team up for success? How do we build the right processes? And then how do we help with corporate processes, earnings release, like budgeting, forecasting, all of the corporate processes that they run, PL management, right? Which is super important for a company like HubSpot and a scaling company. Then I have my commissions team, which is basically very executional in how we pay out commissions across HubSpot, especially for our sales organization. Then I have my business partnership team. So one is the go-to-market business partnership team. So you have sales finance, you have customer success and support finance that rolls up to me, and then partner and strategic finance for go-to-market. And a lot of their work is around how do you scale through geographies? How do you scale through partners? How do you think about segmentation? So a lot of the forward-looking strategic questions on how we should scale as a company, and this finance team really supports that. Then I have my engineering finance team, where we have both the 
you know, OPEX management for R&D within our engineering and COGS. And then we have our strategic finance team where we make a lot of decisions around pricing, mergers and acquisitions, you know, different offerings, packaging decisions as we go, as, as we scale as a company, as well as decisions around partnerships and how we negotiate the best deals as we think about partnerships. So all of those teams sit within FPNA today. Okay, so pretty broad reach. So do I have this right? So kind of a global corporate FP&A team and almost these very specific, almost like, I don't know, I'll call them divisional FP&A teams that are very just focused on, say, the CS side or the engineering yeah. side. And so maybe that rolls up, but very distinct FP&A functions and then a, a global corporate team that, that right. rolls everything up, forecasts, you know, at a high level. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay, okay, really interesting. And then... You know, of course, you know, I'm in SaaS, so everybody knows HubSpot for the most part, I would think, big SaaS business. And so really curious as far as, and this is near and dear to the heart of FP&A teams, right? Preparing for those quarterly earnings calls, preparing for those board meetings. So what are those, some of those key numbers that you report to the board that, that management really feels that we need to, to focus on internally and also, and again, reporting to the board? One thing I will say is one of the things I was surprised by as I came to HubSpot is how integrated and how um, knowledgeable our board is about our business and how to measure our business and how how in-depth they go in kind of thinking about what's happening with the business, right? And I think the SaaS business model at the very highest highest level, Ben, is pretty straightforward to to think about, right? Like what is your customer acquisition strategy and what does that pace look like in terms of customer acquisition? What is your retention strategy and how do you think about your retention metric, be it customer retention, dollar retention, revenue retention? And then how do you use your install base and cross-sell and upsell? And how do you think about expanding your install base of the customers that you retain? So very, very simple in terms of the metric we need to be looking at on a daily quarterly basis from a SaaS business perspective. And then we complement a lot of that with how do we think about LTV to CAC ratios? How do we make sure that we're getting efficient in our CAC and our go-to-market so that we're scaling the company in a very, very efficient manner? Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, these are numbers that you, it's not a fire drill with each board meeting, right? You're, you're calculating these on a monthly basis, just ingrained in your reporting. So would you say, you know, like logo retention, gross dollar retention, net revenue retention, yeah. some of those metrics, LTV to CAC, CAC that you guys are looking at on a monthly basis? Yeah, like customer retention, dollar retention as we bring it in within the retention bucket. Then if you think about the expansion bucket, we look at revenue retention. What is our cross-sell rate? What is our upsell rate? Addition upgrades. How do we think about addition upgrade and downgrade? And then, of course, like new customer acquisition. Like what is our new customer acquisition rate from a customer perspective? What are the ASPs? So really thinking about all of those things within those buckets. And then... For early stage SaaS, they may be happy to calculate just one LTV to CAC. They just have one customer profile. I'm curious for HubSpot, it's that next step. How many, like, do you segment that a lot, like on different ICPs, ideal customer profiles, SMB versus enterprise? So say like an LTV to CAC, do you take that down to maybe three different calculations based on customer profiles? You hit the nail on the head on where companies are in their journey 
with SaaS and how to think about LTV to CAC, right? At HubSpot, we're mature enough where we have a really good segmentation strategy on how we think about very small businesses, small business, mid-market, and corporate. And the CAC, of course, has to be very different across those customer profiles because it's it, we're serving very different customers in each one of those, right? The complexity of what we're servicing is different across these customer profiles and industries. So we take a very deep look at our CAC and LTV by these segments and also by geos because HubSpot operates in a lot more geos than North America and about 50% of our revenue is international. We don't have the same resourcing model and structures in our smaller geos that we have in our bigger geos as we are scaling. So we also take a geographic lens to how do we think about LTV to CAC and how do we optimize that? Yeah, no, really interesting because as you get bigger, right, it's like, okay, not just one CAC or LTV to CAC, or maybe not just one net revenue retention. Now it's ICP. Well, now it's geographies. As you get bigger and bigger and how can we dig into that and see what data the, the, or what story the data is telling us based on segmenting the data. And the biggest piece is everybody's trying to solve for how do you scale efficiently in a responsible manner to optimize the market opportunity, right? And this Mm -hmm. becomes a pretty key metric in thinking through it comprehensively. And one thing I would say is it's the highest level top line metric, but then the biggest conversations or actions are driven when we double click into a lot of these metrics on what's happening within CAC, what's happening within the customer base, how do customers behave differently in uh, all these different pivots of segments and geographies. Yeah, it makes sense. And I had another question come up, but maybe we'll save it towards the end with the different stages of finance. Really curious about the rule of 40 operating leverage with a company of your size. So maybe we can, we'll sneak that in later. Just get your, because that's definitely like a finance concept and discipline, but yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. So just real quick, how about your tech stack? And we know HubSpot's in there, but tell us a little bit about your finance and accounting tech stack. This one is an interesting one for me, Ben, and I've only been at HubSpot for a year. I will say one of the things that we're actively thinking about is how do you think about tech stack as a scaling company, right? Like, do you have a well-architected, integrated tech stack uh, versus what we have at HubSpot today is... We have some, like we use NetSuite, we use Ataplan, we use Adaptive. So we have, like NetSuite is, of course, it's, it's the backbone. We have that. We have some of our data on HubSpot itself. So we have a, a backbone, but then we have a lot of different solutions that solve for one thing. Like we have exactly that my team uses for commissions, right? We use Adaptive, whereas there's parts of our company that use Anaplan for their planning process, like our sales operations team. So all of our different teams have solved for the tool that does the task or the job the best. And now we're getting to a point of like, how do we think about the ROI of having a tech stack that is task and job oriented and does that super efficiently versus having a tech stack that's integrated and governed across the company and makes the processes across the companies efficient. So long answer short, we are in that transformation and in that space of thinking through how do we evolve this? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. A great way to put it, thinking about, yeah, those point solutions, best of breed that just does the task, does the job really well versus just maybe, like you said, an ERP or an integrated solution that kind of ties things together, but is there the same ROI and efficiency? Yeah, it's really interesting. So you, in the beginning, talked about your career coming up through finance. So I want to dive in a little bit more detail there, your journey as a financial leader and kind of what was important in that journey and the areas that you were in, because it was kind of controllership, spend management, but then the FP&A strategic side, more ROI, strategic finance. So tell them, how would you characterize your scaling through the, the, the finance ranks? I would love to have said that I planned all this. I did. <laughs> but I, I definitely had a few principles that I kind of followed as I thought about my career within finance. And I'll kind of boil it down to three principles that I kind of followed. The first is I fundamentally believe that doing a great job of the job that you have opens up a lot of doors. So even as I got into the controllership function, be it marketing or global advertising function, just continuing to think through how do you get efficient at the daily tasks or the repetitive tasks? And how do you free up bandwidths to really value add and leave the or do the job in a in a way that's way better than how you took it. So that's been my fundamental principle of really thinking through how do you create more bandwidth in every job that you have to start adding value in a different way and start adding strategic value. So that's that's one of the principles that I use. The second thing is always pivoting on experiences and taking the risk of trying to do something new and going for new experiences, right? If you followed my journey, I started with OPEX and controllership, when jumped into Office 365 at a time where it was so early, we were just thinking through, like we didn't, like we were realizing things like, oh, churn matters in a subscription business, right? Like you have to think through how customers drive transformation. All of that was new. All of that was the systems weren't there. And I remember a Christmas evening where we sat through just pulling the data together to see how many seats we'd sold. So really pivoting on these new and exciting experiences where uh, things are not really set up, but it, it's really think, think of it as an opportunity to learn and grow and really double down on your skill set. Did the same with Azure, doing something similar with HubSpot. So I always ask myself on, is this going to be challenging? Am I going to continue to learn? And is this going to build my skill set in a different way? Be it partnering, like, am I going to partner with a different kind of function, like engineering versus sales versus marketing? Am I going to learn a new business model? Am I going to learn something, a new process? So always thinking about the experiences you're going to gain. And then the last piece is, I always moved when, one, I thought that I had made progress in a way that I would be leaving the role in a much better place than I took it. And secondly, I felt like my incremental learning wasn't going to be as exciting six months from now in a different role. So I always started to look for a new role six months before I felt like, okay, this is, I'm leaving this in a place that's much better than I took it. And I don't think I'm going to incrementally learn a lot more in this role. Okay. So I'm going to use those principles to guide my career. Yeah, love it. So do a great job, pivot on experience. And then when progress is made, maybe it's time to move on to that new experience. So love that. Love the three principles. 
So the next thing, you know, thinking about HubSpot, I'm actually going to go to here a little bit. You think, hey, great marketing company, but you've had, when we were talking before, a lot of experience supporting engineering leaders. So it'd be great to hear your perspective experience on that, because that's sometimes a little bit harder area of that spend, the ROI, but to be able to you know, be a partner to those engineering leaders other than just watching their budget. So I'd love to hear about, about how you approach those, those partnerships supporting engineering leaders within, within an org. I feel like both Microsoft and HubSpot are very product-driven tech companies, right? So it's really where the action is within our product and engineering organizations, especially as we scale. I do think the landscape has changed quite a bit too, Ben, because a lot of the decisions, like for Microsoft, a lot of the decisions on data center expansion and pricing, and a lot of that was made within engineering. Like, how do you think through different markets to expand and different offerings to expand in different industries. Same at HubSpot, if you think about our packaging and pricing decisions, a lot of those sit within engineering or partnership decisions, right? In how we think about our features and partnerships to expand our feature sets. And I feel like finance plays a very, very unique role there, especially when you have When you're a function and you're able to connect the dots between decisions made in engineering or go-to-market motions, what you're seeing from an industry and investor perspective, that's a pretty powerful place to be able to see this across the spectrum of perspectives and try to bring that together to pricing decisions, packaging decisions, expansion decisions, be it like data center expansions, hublet expansions, your partnership decisions on the different partnerships we're driving with different companies. So I feel like engineering leader, finance leaders, in addition to managing engineering budgets, have such a critical role in that strategic piece that product and engineering is driving in a lot of different companies together where they can have a multiplier effect in a lot of these decisions if they're able to tie these things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, right, the debate of, with companies with a product-led growth strategy, PLG, all right, the investment in engineering, well, is that a kind of a sales and marketing expense down the road and thinking about that? So just a lot of, you could say, almost gray areas coming up now and, you know, and that investment and was it doing for expansion of our customers through our products? Right. So, yeah. And how do you think about all these companies are transforming, right? Like you have engineering products that products that are cash cows for all of these companies. And then we have products where we have to invest in today to be in the right place in the market over the next three to four years. And a lot of those decisions are in engineering. Like how do you like invest in your resources accordingly? So you're not only solving for being efficient in your cash cows and the products that are really established in the market, but also investing for products that are going to drive growth over the next five to six years. So a lot of those decisions in engineering come down to uh, those ROI counts. Yeah, that's a great point because when working at really large companies, you see that, right? And I think you saw that at Microsoft, it sounds like where you have had products that have been out there a long time where they're kind of at that mature life cycle doing well, some nice margins, but do we reinvest? You've got new competitors chipping away at them. You've got early stage products where you're still trying to grow, where some you have like mature, some are in the decline phase. I'm guessing that's what it sounds like you saw at Microsoft, where so many products that they're at different life cycle stages. Yeah, no, really interesting. And so working within all these companies, within Microsoft, within HubSpot, within different divisions, business units, I'm sure you've been in spots where those 
units have been scaling really fast. What's been your experience there approach or what do you focus on when things are really scaling fast is like, boy, I need to hire more finance people or partner more with my divisional leaders. Like where is your focus in a fast scaling business? I spent time in Office 365 while it was scaling, Azure while it was scaling, and now at HubSpot. The one thing I would say is principally the way to think about it is, I always say, agility and progress over perfection. In a scaling business or a scaling product, like you're pulled in so many different directions because honestly, like you're building the plane as you're flying the plane, right? And there's never the right, a right mix of where you're spending your time, where you're spending uh, your energy. So it's always about being agile, making sure that you continue to make progress across all of the things that you want to make progress on. And when I think about all of the things you want to make progress on, there's like a few things. Systematically, the way to think about it is you have your systems and tools that really is the enabler for your team. You have your processes that are the enabler for the company as you think about it. You have your people, right, who are really going to help you scale. Um, And in a scaling business, if if you're in a business that's actually established, you have really good tools and system and tools, you have really good processes, and you're really thinking about, okay, how do I scale with people? Where do I spend the bandwidth that we have? How do we get more strategic? But in a scaling business, like you have you have good things happening in all three pillars and you have not so good things happening in all three pillars, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you make sure you understand what your strengths are in each of these pillars? Like what are my strengths and systems and tools? What are the processes that are running well versus processes that we really need to make a lot of progress on? How do I think about my people? Is my skill set operational? Is my skill set strategic? Am I hiring and retaining and growing folks in the right place? Am I building the right culture? So really thinking those three through three three buckets, and then within those buckets, what are the big pillars you want to focus on? The last thing I would say is to my point on agility and progress mm-hmm. over perfection. What I've done at HubSpot and even what I did at Azure is lay out a vision for the next two to three years but measure progress in quarters because things move so fast in a scaling business. The vision you might have laid out for two years or three years change very quickly, right? So I've kind of laid out the vision of what we want to do in systems and tools, processes and people over the uh, three years. But what we also do is we set quarterly goals and measure ourselves against those quarterly goals because you might be pacing very differently in your vision in each of those buckets. Okay. I love it. So the three pillars, and this seems to be a theme that comes up with experienced finance leaders is people process and technology and then love it. So your roadmap, what's your roadmap for finance or whatever role you're in for those two to three years and then measure that progress quarterly because yeah, time does go fast. And then thinking about fast scaling business units, divisions, and then the the finance. And we talked a little bit about this before the different stages of finance teams and strategic versus operational, which always comes up right at that CFO skill set, the finance skill set. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy, maybe about the different stages of that you've seen with finance teams and, and their focus areas. That's a great question. And a lot of where you, your finance team is will depend on the framework we talked about in terms of systems and tools process, as well as people. 
early, what I found with earlier stage companies is finance is very much in, you know, that operational space, right? Because managing a PL with the lack of systems and tools and processes is a very, very heavy burden on finance. And as we mature and as you get better at your systems and tools, as you get better with your processes, that's really when you can unlock from being a reactive PL management finance team to a proactive business support driver of business finance team. So it really depends on where you are in the spectrum for the systems and tools and processes. The thing that I've kind of found and I'm, I'm doing at HubSpot as well is the skill set of People that have operational excellence in finance versus strategic mindset is very different. And operational work in finance, the the rhythms and the forecasting and close takes a lot of bandwidth to be done right. So we've kind of separated out our strategic finance team from our operational finance team. And we do move people between those functions. So they build the skill set needed for operational finance, as well as the skill set needed for strategic finance. But we've consciously said our business partnering strategic finance teams are going to play a smaller role in our monthly, quarterly rhythm of the business so that they have the bandwidth to focus on the strategic questions, drive the analytics, partner with the business to help them make decisions versus our operational finance team manages our OPEX, runs our forecasting process and is more, spends a lot more time in the processes and rhythm of the business than our strategic finance team. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So yeah, so different focuses as you scan. I'm just curious, say at a HubSpot, you think, hey, big public company, well-known, they've got everything figured out, but have you found in your career uh, in finance that there are always periods of nice progress, you kind of plateau, progress, plateau. Would you say that's kind of the same thing at Microsoft and HubSpot, even though you think, hey, big public company is very mature, it still goes through its own maturity process, even at those sizes? Absolutely. And I don't, I wouldn't say that we have everything figured out. Like I said, (laughs) we believe in progress over perfection and we continue to figure out how we can do things better, how we can do things in a more efficient manner. Um, I, I will say that in scaling businesses, I don't think there is a point when anybody has everything figured out, right? Like in Microsoft, your challenges were different when you were scaling Azure from 1 billion to 2 billion versus 2 billion to 10 billion. It's the same as as at HubSpot, right? The challenges and the questions you were asking as it scaled to 1.5 billion is is very different from the questions we're asking on if we wanna be a $10 billion company. And finance plays a really, really big role in both those stages and asking those questions proactively bringing the right insights and helping drive the decisions that are right for the long term while being optimal in the short term. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because yeah, you just assume big companies, they got to figure it out, but there's always that maturity process. So one of the circle back, one last question here before we wrap up and there, I mean, we could probably talk for a couple more hours here, I'm sure on so many different topics, but your thought around financial discipline, because here, you know, rule of 40, a metric that comes up a lot, profit versus growth. Some people love it. Some people hate it. So just curious, as you invest in your PL at HubSpot, invest in different resources, different areas, is that something that does that 
concept or approach come up of just around financial discipline and when we're investing, what is it doing for us? Is it going to generate growth? Is it going to generate efficiency and ultimately nice margins down the road? So is that kind of a concept that maybe they don't name specifically, but is actually what's being discussed at the table? Yeah, we think about that all the time. And I kind of think of it as scaling efficiently, Mm -hmm. right? Like how do you scale and continue to invest in the business while maintaining cash flow and driving slight leverage in your operating profit. It's easy at the uh, highest level where you're like, okay, I need to drive a little bit of efficiency in my operating profit, maintain cash flow at the same time, grow the business. When you open under the hood, it, it entails a lot of decisions because basically you have to be very strategic and very intentional in places you want to divest and in places you want to invest. And the investment conversations are always the easier conversation. The divestment conversations are the hard conversation, right? How do you start to drive efficiencies within your functions, within how you're scaling, within like systems, tools, facilities? Like there's so many different places Uh, to look at, go to market, right, in your CAC, so that you're investing in the right places for long-term growth. Then the next question that comes is, how much do you invest in maintaining your next year's targets versus how much do you invest in your long-term growth, right? And that only can happen if you continue to get efficient in your baseline spend. So we spend a lot of time thinking about where are we spending in our baseline spend? What are the key ratios? What are our sales ratios, support ratios? How are we spending in R&D? How much are we spending in facilities? How are we thinking about systems? And where can we drive efficiencies to free up dollars. And once you free up dollars, then the questions you start asking is, okay, what do I need to do to achieve next year's target? So part of that investment goes into achieving your next year's target. And then what do I need to invest to set myself up for success over the next five to 10 years? And a part of that goes into setting yourself up for the next five to 10 years in terms of your long-term bets and your strategic bets. So Something we think about, work with the business, and iterate constantly at HubSpot. So it sounds like it was a yes, that yes, there's always that conversation, the debate, efficiency, profit, growth, long-run targets. So yeah, that's great to hear. So I know we could talk for hours about so many different topics here, but let's wrap up with one last thing. If you had one uh, piece of advice to give to modern finance leaders out in the audience, what would it be? I would say continue to think through how you add value for your customers. Learn the business more than your business partners and bring the perspective together of the story the numbers tell and help them make the decision. So like I said earlier, every the first rule for me has always been how do you continue to add value to drive the business forward and how do you help with decision making? I would say in your job, your day-to-day job, continue to reflect on that so that you we make progress on that as finance professionals. That's great. So add value. And also don't forget about your the, the three principles, doing a great job, always pivot on experience, and then move on when you the job is done. So I love that. So again, Richie, Richard, thank you for joining us today on the Leaders Modern Finance podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. 
Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.